Welcome to Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. The introduction of the new investment screening regime will mark a watershed moment for the government's powers to intervene in corporate transactions. In this podcast series, we will be providing you with insight into what's driving the new regime, how it will operate in practice from January next year, and its particular impact on those sectors most affected. This podcast is brought to you by DLA Piper. My name is Sarah Smith, and I'm a partner in the firm's competition practice. I am delighted to be hosting this podcast series and will be joined by DLA Piper's competition, government affairs and sector specialists over coming weeks. In a previous episode, we discussed the political context for the new regime, including who and what is driving the pressure to strengthen investment screening both in the UK and internationally. In this episode, the second of the series, we will discuss the legal context of the regime, how it will operate and the implications for businesses. To discuss this, I'm joined by two of my colleagues from DLA Piper, competition partner Matt Evans and Alastair White, a senior associate in the competition team. So Matt, if I can come to you first. This new regime clearly has very wide-ranging implications for M&A activity involving businesses or assets connected with the UK. At a high level, could you please run us through how the regime will operate? Sarah, thanks. Yes, absolutely. So the regime provides for political oversight of and intervention in investment in the UK. And under new rules coming into force on the 4th of January 2022, contained in the National Security and Investment Act, the government will be able to investigate acquisitions that could harm the UK's national security. Importantly, these rules apply to any qualifying transaction which completed on or after the 12th of November 2020. So in practice, we've been dealing with the implications of this incoming regime for a year already. Now, broadly, the rules will govern a significant amount of M&A and minority investment activity in companies that sell to UK customers. Notably, it won't just apply to the acquisition of UK entities, subsidiaries and branch offices, but will also capture foreign-to-foreign deals where the target business exports goods or services to UK customers. Some transactions will be subject to mandatory notification to the UK government with a bar on closing until clearance is received. The remainder, and this covers a wide range of deals, will be subject to a voluntary notification regime and potential oversight and intervention by the UK government. Ultimately, the government will be able to impose conditions on acquisitions which raise national security concerns, including in some circumstances blocking an acquisition or even unwinding a completed deal. And in certain circumstances, there could be civil or criminal penalties for failure to comply with the new law. So this isn't a regulatory development which can be ignored. The regime will be administered by the Investment Security Unit, which has been established within the Department for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy, known as BAES, with the Secretary of State for BAES, currently Kwasi Kwarteng, as the ultimate decision maker. So, Alistair, given what we've heard about how the regime is intended to operate, evaluating whether a transaction falls within its scope will be vital. How will a business know if its acquisition falls within the new rules? Under the Act, the new rules will apply to qualifying acquisitions, which are termed trigger events. A qualifying acquisition involves the satisfaction of three conditions. Firstly, the acquisition is of a right or interest in a qualifying entity or qualifying asset. An assessment here is relatively straightforward. A qualifying entity is any entity other than an individual, for example, a company, a limited liability partnership, a trust, and a qualifying asset is land, 
tangible movable property, IP, etc. The second condition is that the entity or asset is from, in, or has a connection to the UK. As listeners will note, this condition is very broad and could include, as an example, the acquisition of a factory in France which produces vaccines for use in the UK. Finally, the third condition is that the level of control you acquire over the qualifying entity or qualifying asset meets or passes a certain threshold. Here, again, the rules take a broad approach, but essentially this condition will be satisfied if the acquirer takes a shareholding or voting interest in the target that crosses either the 25%, 50% or 75% thresholds, acquires voting rights that allow it to pass or block resolutions, or acquires an interest which allows it to materially influence the policy of an entity or direct the use of an asset. The material influence concept is the same as that used in UK competition law, with the relevant consideration being whether the acquirer can materially influence the management of a target's business, including its strategic direction and its ability to define and achieve its commercial objectives. What's interesting here is that there are no turnover or share of supply thresholds which are applicable. The reason for this, as we discussed in episode one, is simply that the government needs to be able to review all transactions that could impact on national security, not just those which exceed certain thresholds. So it certainly sounds like the scope of the jurisdiction of the regime, at least, is very broad and and will capture a wide range of different types of acquisitions and transactions. To go back to process for a moment, Matt, you mentioned earlier that there are both voluntary and and mandatory notification systems. Could you go into a little more detail on that? Sure. Why why don't I cover the mandatory ones? So under the mandatory regime, the buyer will be legally required to notify the government about acquisitions of entities in any of 17 sensitive areas of the economy – and will be required to get clearance before completion. Now, I say it's the buyer, and and that's correct as a matter of law, but there's a clear interest on the seller to wait for clearance and cooperate with the notification, because if clearance isn't received before the deal closes, then one of the consequences is that the deal could be declared void, and that could have very serious consequences for the seller. So both parties are in their interest to get this right. So the 17 sectors that the government have identified are those that it thinks pose an enhanced risk to national security. I'm not going to cover all 17 on on this podcast, but by way of example, they cover a number of tech sectors, including AI, computing hardware, data infrastructure, quantum technology. They also cover key infrastructure sectors such as energy, telecoms and transport, and then more obvious high-risk areas to national security such as civil nuclear, critical supplies to the government, supplies to the emergency services, and defence broadly make up the balance. Now, the exact scope of these areas is prescribed in secondary legislation, and we'll cover some of those in in detail in some future episodes of this series. But it's important to note, I think, at this stage, that the consequences, as I say, of getting this wrong and not notifying a deal that ought to have been notified are your deal could be declared void, and you could face civil and criminal penalties. Um, The civil penalty could be up to 5% of your organisation's global turnover or £10 million, whichever is greater. Now, one nuance worth flagging is that the mandatory part of the regime only applies to acquisitions of qualifying entities, so share acquisitions, not qualifying assets. The latter fall under the voluntary part of the regime, so you don't have the same consequences of failure to notify. Ali, do you want to cover that voluntary regime? 
Thanks, Matt, certainly. The application of the voluntary regime is, in, in some ways, simpler. If an acquisition is a qualifying acquisition in an area outside of a mandatory sector, or is an acquisition of assets within a mandatory sector, then it will be subject to the voluntary regime. Here, an acquirer has no obligation to inform the government of a transaction, but if the government reasonably suspects that the transaction might give rise to a national security risk, it may be called in for review. The government will be able to assess acquisitions for up to five years after they've taken place and up to six months after being becoming aware of them if they have not been notified. We expect that the voluntary part of the regime will be approached differently by businesses, probably due to either differing levels of internal risk appetite or enforced commercial requirements, for example, where a seller refuses to accept a conditional transaction. The main way of mitigating risk here will be to submit a voluntary notification to Bayes requesting confirmation that the Secretary of State will not progress the transaction to a full national security assessment. And that, as you say, that voluntary regime is going to be an important mechanism for businesses to manage the risks associated with failure to file uh, and dealing with the government's call-in powers and, and to preempt that. I actually think that the secondary legislation is clear, as it can be, on the definitions of, of the sectors, but it is inevitable that there will be grey areas and that some businesses and transactions will, will find themselves in some doubt as to whether they have a mandatory filing. Or indeed, if they fall outside the mandatory notification obligation, they may nevertheless uh, want to manage that risk if they think there's a possibility the government will call in. So if that happens and there is a notification or, or indeed the government calls in the deal, what are the substantive issues that Bayes and, and the team are going to be looking at to determine whether it's an acceptable transaction or raises concerns? Matt? Yeah, Sarah. So that's the million dollar question. And I think the proof of the pudding will be in the eating and we're going to have to see how this plays out. I mean, what do we know? We know that the government have made it very clear that they are only focused on national security. So for the time being, under the current government, the legislation doesn't extend to economic considerations such as keeping jobs in in the UK or keeping particular assets in the UK. The government hasn't set out an exhaustive list of circumstances in which national security is or may be at risk. That's a public policy issue. It's a long-standing policy to ensure that national security powers are sufficiently flexible to protect the nation. That said, um, the government has indicated that the Secretary of State is likely to carry out in-depth reviews where there may be a potential for immediate or future harm to national security, and that includes risks to governmental and defence assets, infrastructure, technologies and capabilities, such as disruption or erosion of a military advantage, the potential impact of a qualifying acquisition on the security of critical infrastructure, and the need to prevent actors with hostile intentions towards the UK, building defence or technological capabilities which may present a national security threat to the UK. That's still jargon, and it's still not entirely sure what that means. Um, The government have set out three types of risks that they will assess, a target risk, acquirer risk and control risk. Target risk is looking at what the qualifying asset or business actually does. Are its activities such that a change of control may raise a risk to national security? For example, does the target have contracts with the government to carry out IT security audits for government entities? Does it have access to information about the government and government bodies? where a change of control, particularly by uh, a foreign business uh, controlled by entities that may be hostile to the UK, could pose an increased national security risk. 
looking at the acquirer risk, is there something about the acquirer that means that there could be a national security concern if it controlled a business providing key goods or services to the UK economy? That would look at the ultimate control of the acquirer. So you wouldn't be able simply to structure a deal by using a UK or EU incorporated company as the acquiring entity if the ultimate controller is deemed to be from a state that is maybe hostile to to the UK. And the government's been very careful not to name particular countries, and that no doubt will change over time. So uh, it's not just for diplomatic reasons that they haven't done that. Yeah. They, they, they need to be flexible. And finally, they'll look at the level of control that's being acquired. The lower the levels of control, maybe the less of a risk. Conversely, the higher level of control, the greater the risk. And it's going to be a balancing act for the UK. And they're going to look at what sort of information is the acquirer going to obtain? Is the acquirer ultimately controlled by a hostile nation? And balancing that with an overriding desire to still have an open economy and to still attract foreign direct investment. The government's going to have to report in a year's time how it's playing out. And I think over the following years, we're going to see and get a feel for what sort of deals are going to sail through without intervention and which ones the government might intervene with and what those interventions will look like. That's right. And as you say, we have those articulated principles as to how the assessment is going to be approached, quite what that means in practice when applied to real commercial situations and transactions. We'll have to wait and see and no doubt precedents will evolve over time. And it's an important point you make that whilst the scope of the type of transaction that is potentially reviewable under this regime is, I think, broad, the substantive analysis is going to be limited to national security considerations, whereas in some international regimes, they take into account wider national interest considerations. So in that sense, it's it's arguably narrower than some of the um, the other international systems. So, I mean, thank you both. That's a very helpful overview of the system and the process. There are a number of quirks in our regime that we haven't mentioned yet, but that we thought would be worth flagging to our listeners. Alistair, do you want to pick up on a couple of points that have struck you about about the regime? Yes, certainly. So I think one quirk is that the government can assess a potential qualifying acquisition that has not yet happened if it reasonably suspects that the transaction may cause a national security risk. So, for example, if the parties to a transaction have signed heads of terms, the government may be able to call in that transaction if it anticipates relevant concerns. And this is a quite a material divergence from many other regulatory regimes, including a lot of merger control regimes. Mm-hmm. I, guess, I guess on that one, that's going to be a relatively limited subset of deals. It's potentially deals that are played out in the public domain, maybe with listed companies, or it could be where there is a disgruntled third party who's missed out on an acquisition and is looking to be mischievous and tip off the government. Yes, certainly. Uh, I think one other quirk is that, and this is a point we mentioned earlier, but is is really worth reiterating, the regime applies to, obviously, UK-based entities and assets, which is fairly standard for a national security or FDI regime but it also applies to UK-connected entities and assets. And this is much less usual, and so businesses must be on the ball when making acquisitions of potentially relevant entities or assets. Yeah, I mean, I think another one, and it's perhaps picking up on that theme, and it's one that 
is really different from every other equivalent regime around the world, as far as as, as far as we know, is that the re- regime applies equally to UK purchases as non-UK purchases. So it's not a foreign direct investment control regime in the sense that we're familiar with in other jurisdictions. That's really a big difference from other countries. Now, obviously, nationality will feed into the assessment of acquirer risk, but it won't negate the need to carry out a full assessment under their regime and potentially make a mandatory filing. Maybe another one which we haven't touched on, and I think will lead to a, a huge range of frankly unnecessary filings, is that the legislation captures corporate restructurings and reorganisations, including the mandatory filing obligation. Now, that goes further than many existing regimes in other jurisdictions, not all. And it's also different from the antitrust merger control regime that competition practitioners and in-house counsel are used to, where one always looks at the ultimate purchaser. Here, internal restructuring, changing the direct purchaser might trigger a new filing obligation, including a mandatory one. So that's one to look out for. Well, I think the one thing that we can all be sure is that businesses and their advisors will have to be very familiar with the new regime and build in consideration of the new NSNI system when they are thinking about transactions and doing their due diligence and going through the corporate process to ensure that they don't tread on any of these potential banana skins. Well, thank you, Matt, Alistair. That's been very interesting. And thank you to you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the DLA Piper series, Understanding the UK National Security and Investment Regime. Look out for episode three in the coming weeks, where we'll be discussing the implications of the regime on the industrial sector. Mm -hmm.